last week we began this uh, new series of messages we are calling Rumble Strip. And if you missed it or if you've slept since last weekend, we said that Rumble Strips are a road safety feature to alert inattentive drivers of potential danger by causing a tactile vibration and audible rumbling transmitted through the wheels into the vehicle interior, or you could just say bumps on the side of the road. All right. Uh, and uh, we, all of us have probably experienced these. I'm just kind of curious how many of you since last week, you just seem to notice the rumble strips a whole lot more. You're welcome. All right. I noticed them too. And we've all probably had uh, that experience. Maybe we've been on a long road trip. Uh, maybe we're driving through the night. We're getting a little drowsy. Maybe we take our eyes off the road just for a second. We get distracted and we feel the vibration and we hear the sound of a rumble strip. And Uh, At times, they can be, if I'm being honest, like a little bit annoying, especially like if you're at high speed and you don't expect it, and it can be a little startling, Uh, not quite fingernails on the chalkboard, but but getting close. But I'm learning to to be grateful for rumble strips, and we said this last week because there's three primary things that they do. Number one, they wake you up, uh, alerting you to the danger that may be there. Number two, and this is so important to remember, is that they're still well inside the safety zone. See, a rumble strip wouldn't do us very good if they were all the way to the edge of the pavement or maybe even off in the ditch somewhere. I mean, if that's where the rumble strip was, then by that time, like, it's too late, like, like the damage has been done. And then number three, they assist you uh, to your destination. So they're not just there so that we avoid a crash, but they are there to help us arrive at the place that we, we need to, to be. And so God has placed these rumble strips in all of our lives, and they can be found in the principles that are found in his word, as well as the promptings of his spirit. And I want you to remember that, that rumble strips are the principles and the promptings. And God has placed these rumble strips in our lives, not because he's an egomaniac, it's not because he's trying to control you or me, or be trying to take away your, your fun. In fact, It's the exact opposite. Like God has placed these rumble strips in our lives uh, for our benefit, uh, to to maximize the life that we've been given. In fact, one time Jesus would say this. He would say, I have come to. And if you were just to imagine how he might finish that statement, and Jesus didn't say, I've come to, you know, teach you morals. I've come to make you religious You know, Jesus could have said, I've come to tell you to go to church. You know, he didn't say any of that. Jesus said this, I've come to give you life to to the fullest. And I know that maybe, especially if you've attended church for any length of time at all, you've probably heard that. I mean, it comes right out of John 10, 10. Some of you, maybe you didn't know that was there. Regardless, can you just let that statement land on you for a minute? Like that's Jesus saying the reason why he came was to give you life to the fullest. That means that he wants you to maximize this life that you've been given, that God has created you and you are the only you, both past, present, and future. Like God has gifted you with some things. He's given you the personality that he's given you. And God says, I've given you this incredible life and I want you to maximize it. I want you to live it to the fullest. He's for you. But he's laid down these rumble strips so that you can maximize that life that you've been given. This last summer, I spent a few days in Germany visiting uh, one of the churches that we support. And uh, my German friends took me out on the Autobahn, uh, which is like a bucket list kind of a thing for me. And if you don't know what the Autobahn is, 
Uh, first of all, sh- shame on you. All right, se- uh, second, second of all, it's this uh, stretch of interstate, or not interstate, it's a highway that kind of runs through uh, most of Europe uh, where significant stretches of it, there is no speed limit as God intended, all right? Uh, it is a glorious, glorious thing, and uh, we, we go out on the Autobahn, and I, you know, was sort of hoping, like, I didn't know if I'd ever get the chance to go on the Autobahn. I was hoping that when I did, it would be like in something exotic, like a Porsche 911 or a Lamborghini or something like that, but um, it was a VW Golf, all right? That's what we were in, <laughs> and uh, it wasn't one like the souped-up one either. It was just kind of a regular one, but I was actually pretty impressed because uh, we, we were doing 130 miles an hour. It was awesome. And that's like one of the first times that I can actually stand on this stage and tell you without guilt how fast I was going because we were well within the law, all right? It's just, you can go as fast as you want, right? And so stop judging me, all right? So uh, we're, we're driving down, going 130, and I'm just having the time of my life. It's so smooth, it's amazing. And I turned to my friends and I said, so are there very many accidents on the Autobahn? And according to the two of them, they said, well, no, not, not as many as you would think, but when there are uh, they, they're pretty bad. And I would say that, that God has given you, could I say it this way? God has given you a V12 engine. Like he wants you to maximize the life that you've been given, and yet uh, there are hazards in the road, and when there is an accident, it can be pretty bad. And so God's laid down these rumble strips not to take away from your life, but to but to allow the life that you've been given to be fully maximized. In other words, could I say it like this? God doesn't want you to trade cheap happiness for lasting joy, and many of us are doing that right, right now. Like, like God doesn't want you to experience the pain of damaged relationships, so that's why he gave you some principles for relationships. Like God doesn't want you to experience the strain of financial stress, so he gave you some principles to deal with money. God, God doesn't want you to trade graceless religion for a gracious relationship that comes in and through Jesus. See, see the rumble strips, they, they are dad looking out for us because he wants you to maximize the life that you've been given. And some of us today, maybe we are just playing it so safe. We're just driving down the road, 10 and 2, like, you know, grandma style. We're just like creeping along the road, like, don't crash, don't crash, don't crash, don't crash. Some of us have pulled off the road altogether. And, and what I want you to hear in this series is the promptings of God to say, would, would, you, would you get back out on the road and would you live the life that I died to, to give you? So here's the thing is that it, regardless of whether you believe anything that I'm saying right now or not, regardless of whether you believe in God or you don't, regardless of whether you trust the Bible or you don't, it doesn't change the fact that these principles are at work right now in your life and in mine. And nobody plans on wrecking their life. Nobody plans on filing bankruptcy. Nobody plans on ruining their health. Nobody plans ever on walking down the aisle and saying, well, I love you now, but maybe one day this will end in a really messy divorce. Maybe. I don't know. Nobody plans on doing that. The problem is that we just don't plan not to. And so what the rumble strips are and establishing rumble strips is how not to ruin your life. They keep us on the path from where we are to where we want to be. And so last week I just simply laid out this challenge for you, and I'm accepting it for me, is to say, man, when I hear the rumble strips, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to ignore it. I, I'm going to make the necessary course corrections. Today, I want to talk about uh, the people that are in your car. I want I wanted you to think about the people that are in your life right now. And 
I think that all of us would agree that what makes a road trip so great isn't just the scenery or the windows rolled down or the playlist blaring through your speakers, but what makes a road trip really great are the people that are in your car. And I want to show you a couple of pictures. This right here is a 1986 Chrysler LeBaron. Uh, This is the very first car that uh, I owned as a 16-year-old. I can sense the envy in the room, all right? Uh, uh, I actually, this is actually way nicer than the one I had. Like, this is a convertible. I had like a hard top, and it was kind of like this, like, puke brown color. And, uh, it, but it did have a sunroof in it. It wasn't like an automatic thing. Like, it was like a manual. Like, I don't even know if they make those anymore. It just would, like, pop up manually. You could actually take the whole thing out. It weighed, like, 50 pounds. And I would often take it out and put it in the trunk, then have to put it back in. And it was very strange times. And uh, the person that um, was riding shotgun... Uh, with me most of the time when I had this car was a friend of mine named Kyle and Kyle and I had known each other since we were really young and went to high school together uh, would be college roommates uh, for our freshman year and uh, Kyle and I had a lot of fun in this car I remember one uh, day in particular we were on this like two-lane country road there was nobody around for miles and uh, I had the sunroof out and Kyle jumped up on top of my car and sat on the roof with his feet dangling down through the sunroof and I didn't want to miss out on the fun And so I set the cruise control and jumped up on the roof with him and steered with my feet, all right? That, you can go ahead and judge me for that one. I'd probably deserve it, all right? Uh, Not a lot, you know, frontal lobe hadn't been developed yet, but it was a good time. And uh, I'm so thankful that God uh, dropped Kyle into my life. He's still a friend today. We don't get to spend as much time together as what we did in these formative years, but God knew I needed him. And I would say that one of the things that God taught me through my friendship with Kyle is uh, that I need to be the same person up here that I am at home, that I don't need to pretend to be someone that I'm not. Kyle really challenged me to be a man of integrity and character, still does today, and I'm so grateful for his influence on my life. I want to show you another car. This is the second car I drove. This was a 1991 Pontiac Grand Am. Uh, May it rest in peace. And... uh, This actually is identical to the one I drove, even the color and everything. And I was in uh, college at the time that I drove this car. And uh, who was riding shotgun with me most of the time when I had this car was a friend of mine named John. And John was hands down the most intelligent uh, guy I've ever met in my life. John could speak intelligently to any subject. Uh, He wanted to go to school to become a medical doctor. That was his plan all the way up till the summer after he graduated high school when God got a hold of his heart and called him into ministry. And so we met at Bible college. And uh, John knew more about the Bible than anybody I'd ever met. And uh, John and I had a lot of fun uh, in this car as well. There were a few Friday nights where we would drag Main Street together. And uh, there would be like a group of fundamentalist Christians uh, on the street corner with signs telling people they were going to hell. And it would make John so mad that he would say, Brockett, pull the car over. And I'm like, what? He's like, pull the car over. So I pull the car over right in front of them. He would roll down the window and start engaging with them. And, and then he would get out of the car and go toe-to-toe with them. And he would just out-argue them and dismantle their misuse of Scripture. And I, I would, like, get out of the car eventually, too, and just kind of walk over there. But I don't know if you know, there's, like, not a lot going on up here. So I was just standing there like... <laughs> like, at one point, John would be like, hey, Aaron, like, what do you think? I'm like, sounds pretty good, John. Thank you, got it. <laughs> I think you got it covered. Want to go get some tacos? All right, it's like, that's about all I could contribute to the interaction. All right. 
Um, but I'm really grateful for John's friendship because here's what John, here's what, how, how God used John's friendship with me is that God taught me through John that I needed to be a better student of God's word, but that I should never let my knowledge of God's word outpace my love for people. Because I know that the example that I gave makes John kind of seem a little bit abrasive. He actually was very loving with them. He just would like slice their throat and they didn't know it. <laughs> but John loves people maybe better than anybody I've ever met. And, and, and God reinforced that message through my friendship with John. The next car that I drove is a 1995 Honda Civic, uh, the same one that they had in the opening scene of the very first Fast and the Furious. All right, But mine was nowhere near as nice. And uh, I love this little car. It's probably one of my favorite cars. Five-speed, spoiler on the back, a lot of fun. And the person that was riding shotgun with me most of the time that I had this car uh, was this beautiful girl by the name of Lindsay. And uh, Lindsay and I, is, uh, she's, she's my wife. This is when we first met and started dating. We got engaged. Actually, when we got married, this was the car that we drove. So it's very clear that she married me for my money. And... Um, <laughs> And uh, Lindsay and I had a lot of fun in this car, and we got to know each other, uh, going on dates, and uh, I would say that, uh, hands down, we just celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary this past summer, and uh, thank you, and I would say that, hands down, God has used um, her and her influence and her voice more than any other human being on the face of the earth. Her voice sounds a whole lot like the Holy Spirit. And there are moments when she's, uh, help, she has helped me see blind spots. She's made me a better husband, a better friend, a better leader. Uh, I'll say that she is uh, the most underrated leader in our church. And she's not on staff. She has no official role. Uh, in fact, uh, she loves to be behind the scenes. She doesn't want any recognition. I'm probably going to get in trouble for even using this part of the message today. But So I better move on real quick. But I just want you to know that uh, there have been plenty of moments when I could have taken this church past the rumble strips off the cliff, and she's the one that kept it on the road. So you can thank her, all right? Uh, here's the last car I'll show you. I had, the next car I had was a 1998 Dodge Intrepid, and uh, the person that was riding shotgun with me most of the time when I had this car was a guy named Ron. Uh, I... Uh, I drove this car during my, my first full-time ministry. I was 24 years old. I was the lead pastor of a church of about 180 people in a small southern Illinois town. I was in way over my head. I had way too much vision for my own good. I was moving way too fast and really immature. And uh, God really used Ron. Ron just kind of brought me under his wing. He's about twice my age, maybe a little more than that. And I remember... Uh, we would go out and hit golf balls or go to lunch, and then we would come back and just sit in the driveway in this car for like hours and just talk. And Ron believed in me, and Ron uh, knew how to confront me on some things in a way that left me feeling built up, not torn down. And God used Ron in a significant time in my life to, to say, hey, Aaron, you, you need to mature, you need to, to grow, uh, you need to allow uh, the Holy Spirit to do some work in your heart. I'm so grateful for my relationship with, with Ron. So here's what I want you to see today. Is that God will bring people into our lives in various stages and places for a specific reason. So here, here's where I want you to take with you today. Is that God always uses people to grow people. Like always. Like without exception. Like when God wants to teach me something... He'll bring a person into my life. Now, it's not that God can't teach me that thing when I'm like, you know, reading his word or praying or alone. But what he'll do is he'll reinforce it through a person. 
Like God will bring, if he wants to challenge me, he'll bring a person into my life. When he wants to encourage me, he'll bring someone into my life. When he wants to see me to see a blind spot uh, that I can't see on my own, God will bring a person into my life. And God brings people into our lives, sometimes just for a moment, but it's a significant moment. God brings people into our lives for a season. Maybe there's a stretch or a chapter in which God has brought a person into your life. God always brings people into our lives for a reason. And then there's a, there's a, a very small group of people outside of family God will bring into your life for a lifetime. He just always will. And so the question that I want you to reflect upon today is simply this one right here. Whom has God placed in my life at the right time for something that I needed to give or receive. And what makes a great relationship isn't just um, receiving, and what makes a great relationship isn't giving, but there's equal amounts of both. Look, look at how Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12 puts it. It says, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone, well, they're in real trouble. And likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Now, this is the kind of thing that you can read, and the lens by which you read it determines its power over your life. What I mean by that is that it's very, very easy to read something like this and to read it through the lens of logic, read it through the lens of information, and say, okay, I, I, I understand what it's saying. Uh, two are, is better than one. Three is better than two. Got it. It's a different thing to read it through the lens of personal reflection and to say, well, Am I applying that logic to my life? Am I taking that information and am I allowing it to change the way that I live? That's a totally different question. Say, so, so who, who is it for me? Like, if I fell, who's going to pick me up? Who am I investing in? Who am I standing back to back with? For the sake of memorability, maybe could I say it this way, is who is my ride or die? And if you're not familiar with that term, it just basically means anybody that you write out any problems in life with or die trying. And I mean it in a positive way, not in an abusive, negative way. Like, I mean, like somebody that you would say, hey, man, I got your back no matter what. Like, I'll be with you through thick and thin, through the highs and through the lows. Who is that for you? And maybe, I don't know, right now, you could rattle off the names of two or three. Maybe it would be five or six. Jesus had 12. And by the way, they were all pretty flawed, imperfect, messy people who would hurt him. And Jesus is the sinless, perfect son of God, and yet he felt the need to be in relationship with other people. I don't want you to miss that. It's not just what Jesus was trying to give to the disciples. It's also what he needed from them. Don't believe me? The only time that we know that Jesus was ever tempted was when he had spent 40 days alone. The night before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, he's in the garden, and he's in anguish over what's about ready to happen to him, and he says to the guys, hey, listen, could you just stay awake and keep me company and pray? Like, I don't need your advice. I don't need you to fix it. I certainly don't need you to bail me out, Peter. I just need you to be with me. 
And so here's the thing is that if Jesus needed a few ride or dies in his life, what makes you think you don't? And what makes me think I can handle this all on my own? And yet so many of us have and are right now. I would say that loneliness and that feeling of being alone is just rampant right now in our, in our society and culture. There may be a number of reasons for that that I just don't have time to go into, but it's true. And one of the things that sin affected first is our relational connection with God and our relational connection with others. Like when Adam and Eve sinned, like the, it, it, it severed their relational connection. They, they, they covered themselves up and they ran off and hid. And it damaged their relational connection to God because God couldn't find them. He said, where are you? And we've been in that space ever since. Have you noticed? And if you're dealing with some relational tension right now with people that you love and like, totally different to have tension in a relationship with somebody you don't really care for, but all of it. I don't care if it's your very best friend, you're so compatible, like you would ride a tandem bike on the weekends together, like you just, you just complete each other, like, you know, Jenny and Forrest, all right? You're just like peas and carrots, all right? I don't care. Eventually, you do enough time together, you live in, long enough to, uh, in relationship together, you're going to get on each other's nerves. And there's a reason for it. We feel relationally disconnected from God. Some of you walked in here today, you didn't sing a word of what we just sang because you just feel so distant. And so what will happen is that the enemy gets us in this space right here where we are isolated. And it's a lonely space to, to be. And he, he won't get you to commit some big bad sin. He's, he's like way craftier than that. What he'll do is just little by little, he'll just get you alone. It just knock your support system out from underneath you. It's like playing chess. So just single the pieces out until they're alone, and then eventually, it's checkmate. And see, I, I don't think that you need to be convinced that, you know, you, you don't have to be physically alone to feel alone. Some of you are sitting in a crowded room right now with people. you got a person maybe you're shoulder to shoulder with, but yet you still feel alone. You know what it feels like to walk down the crowded hallway at school and feel like you're the only one facing these issues. You're the only one dealing with this problem. Like maybe you're laying in bed at night and you're two feet from your spouse. Two feet, but it might as well be 1,500 miles emotionally. There was a study done out of Yale University, which a guy by the name of David Levinston did this study, and he found that six out of ten women say that they have a close peer relationship that's marked by openness and mutual commitment with other ladies. Six out of ten say that. Uh, only one out of ten uh, men claim to have that. Uh, there was a study done at Harvard several years ago involving 7,000 people over nine years, and they, they were looking for uh, the Indicators of Human Flourishing, and they took that research and they put it into a book it's by Robert Putnam. It's called Bowling Alone, and Robert Putnam uh, makes this statement in that book. He says, if you belong to no groups, but you decide to join one, you, you cut your risk of dying over the next year in half. That's sort of like a startling statement. I actually took that to our discipleship department. I said, I think we need to change our whole slogan around our life groups to get in a group or die but it got voted down. It's probably a wise call, all right? But Putnam did go on to say that social isolation is as big of a risk factor for premature death as smoking. 
See, we flourish as human beings when we are rightly connected to God and rightly connected to other people. And you know this to be true. There's power in connection. Is there anybody in your life right now and all it takes is just one simple five-minute interaction and when you walk away from them, you feel like a uh, dried-up, squeezed-out lemon they just squeeze the life out of you. There was, there was, you walk away just totally dried up, exhausted. But is there anybody in your life right now, one five-minute interaction fills you up, clears your head, puts a spring in your step. You're like, man, I feel so encouraged and I'm ready. But why? Because there's power in connection. There's also power in isolation, but not the good kind. I know that when isolated, we are more likely to give in to temptation in isolation, we're more likely to be discouraged, disillusioned, and depressed. In isolation, we're more likely to be self-absorbed. We're more likely to create and rehearse negative narratives in our mind. We're more likely to spend money foolishly. We're more likely to relapse into destructive habits and addictions. I know that for me personally, it is a big, giant red flag when the only voice that I've been listening to lately to comfort and console me sounds a whole lot like my own. And I realize that what I'm saying to myself most likely isn't healthy, helpful, or true. And so when we get isolated, and that's a, that's, that should be a rumble strip because we're in danger. It's kind of like those nature shows. You ever seen those where the water buffalo kind of wanders off from the herd? He's all by himself. And man, as soon as a lion sees the water buffalo away from the herd by himself, like the water buffalo's kind of bigger than the lion, but the lion's going, no, I can take him. I can take it. He's, he's away. He's away from the herd. He's, he's, he's the most vulnerable he's going to be. And so that's when I'm going to attack. Listen, we have an enemy that has been devouring people for centuries. He has gotten really, really good. He is stronger than you. And he is stronger than me. But he is not stronger than us. And that's what God has done. is that he brings people together into community. And always in the Bible, he would send people out in twos. Why do you think that is? Because he knows that in isolation, you're the most vulnerable and the most weak. Now listen, I don't think that I'm telling you anything new. I think that most of us listening to this understand this. I think that you might even agree with it, even if you don't necessarily like it or if you're in the mood to hear it. Deep, deep down inside, underneath all the hurt, underneath all the reservations, you're like, yes, I know. I know, but there are still reasons and excuses that we give for living in isolation. One may just be our own pride. And by pride, I don't mean that you think you're better than other people, therefore you don't need community. That's not what I mean. But pride can sound like this. Oh, I don't want to be a bother. I'll figure it out on my own. I'll be okay. That's a form of pride. Another excuse that we give is I'm busy. Maybe the most common one. And we are. <laughs> That's true. We are so busy. And I just don't know when I would have the margin to fit this in. And so we, d we just don't do it. We have good intentions, but we, we don't do it. Another is just proximity uh, to good people that we trust. We live in a more transient society than ever before. And so 
maybe you were in community, maybe you did have really, really good relationships, but uh, that couple got transferred to California, and this person over here, uh, they, you know, moved, and this person over here, their marriage fell apart, so they're, and all of a sudden you found yourself, like, gradually drifting into isolation, and you didn't even realize it. I think another one is, is just fear. Fear that if they see the real me, they won't like what they see. Fear that if I get vulnerable with someone, they'll use it against me. And the reason why I feel that way is because it's happened before. And I did have relationships, and I trusted that person, and I shared some things with them, and it turned on me, or they abandoned me, or they embarrassed me, or they belittled me, or they judged me, and it felt awful. And so some of you, even right now, maybe this last week, maybe you said this to yourself, I'm done. I'm done. Like, if that's how those people are going to treat me, then no thank you. Like, I'm not going to put myself out there anymore. I'm not going to get vulnerable anymore. I'm not going to invest anymore. Some of you have said, besides, faith is a private thing. I, I can believe in God and follow Jesus on my own. I don't need anybody else. And maybe you've thought that. Maybe you believe that. Maybe you're married to a spouse that uses that as an excuse not to come with you to church. Faith is a private thing. I don't need other people. I don't need to talk about it. It's a very common sentiment, especially in the Western world. Um, statistician Ed Stetzer said this. He said, only 21% of believers say they need to connect with others to grow in their relationship with Jesus. Uh, when I read that, I about fell out of my chair. That's the vast majority of us. Like, what, 79% of us say that we don't need other people to grow? And, and then he said 65% of us say that they keep their struggles to themselves. And so we got a whole lot of people that are in isolation a whole lot of people that have wandered off thinking that it's okay, thinking that this sounds legitimate. And, can I, and I know that some of you might disagree with me right now. And can I just very lovingly and very pastorally say that your faith is a very personal thing. But it was never meant to be private. Because God always uses people, even the messy ones who hurt you, to grow people. And some of you may not believe me, and I guess I could maybe say, well, don't just take my word for it. Um, Jesus actually said this one time in Matthew 28. This was his mission statement to all of us. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. I just got a question. How do you do that privately? How do you do that all by yourself, just you and God in your prayer closet? Like Proverbs 18 says to us, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. We, we could go uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Let us not neglect our meeting together as apparently 79% of us do, but encourage, encourage one another. We, we could go 1 Corinthians 12, 27. All of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. There's an African Proverbs that says, man, you, you want to go fast and go alone, but you want to go far, well, go together. I know that there are times when I just want to go fast, and so I get by myself, and that's when I get tripped up and listen. If you're here today, and you're like, man, I've been burned before, I've been hurt before, and somebody took advantage of me, somebody hurt me, and maybe that's part of the reason why you're at home watching online by yourself right now. 
Maybe that's the reason why you found a church that's a little bit bigger in its atmosphere so that you could slip in late and leave early and be anonymous and sit in the back and just not say, I'll just come and take the information and the experience, but I don't want to know anybody. And I just want to say to you, man, I get it. And I've been there. And actually, some of my deepest wounds have come from people within the church. But I still love the church anyway. And I've seen how God can take those wounds and he can heal them and he can bind them up and he can use them to shape and form my character. And so I don't know for what it's worth. Can I just say I'm so sorry? That really stinks. And in the same breath, can I say don't give up? Don't stay on the ground. Don't isolate yourself from other people. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24, it says... One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, meaning that there is such a thing as unreliable friends. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, namely Jesus Christ, but there are others. So it's like just because you've had unreliable friends doesn't mean that all of them are unreliable. And so, man, don't isolate yourself because one of the greatest lies that the enemy will use for for many of us is that he'll say, you just need to isolate yourself so that you can heal when in reality you're actually cutting yourself off from God's instrument that will bring healing into your life. Some of you today, maybe you need to take that wisdom and you need to say, I need to be more selective with the people that are in my car because right now i got the wrong people in my car. And I want to surround myself with people that are walking in wisdom so that I'll walk in wisdom. Right now, I'm actually listening to the advice of a friend who's actually giving me very ungodly advice. And she's speaking out of her own pain rather than what's good for me. And I need to discern that. And it doesn't mean I don't love her. doesn't mean that I'm being harsh with her. But I need to pull the car over and very kindly ask her to get out. Because she's taking a seat somebody else needs to have. Because if you want to be wise, you got to walk with the wise. Galatians chapter 5, verse 7 says this. says, you are running the race so well. Who has held you back from following the truth? And could I ask you to personalize that one? Anybody holding you back from following the truth? Now listen, man, I need friends in my life who will represent grace and truth. I need friends in my life who, when I'm messing up, will not be afraid to get up in my face and, and say it. But I need friends who will forgive me easily. And I, I need friends who will be gracious with me and give me the benefit of the doubt. I need friends who will believe in the best version of me so that I'll live up to it. I need friends who will laugh with me and cry with me. And you do too. And if you don't have that right now in your life, we, I, I'm not saying I can fix it for you. I'm not saying that I've got a program, you know, that you'll sign you up and you'll have it. But I do say that, that one of the, the backbones of this church is not what happens in these rooms on Sunday morning. The backbones of what happens in this church is what happens in living rooms and coffee houses and vehicles and conference rooms when people get together in small groups and just get real. And basically... And basically, when you're getting together with groups, here's what I want to ask you just to do as you get together in your life groups. I'd love to see more than 90% of our church in groups, in community together, meeting sometime regularly throughout the week or the month. And basically, you get together with other real people and you just say, hey, what's God teaching you? Maybe through the messages, maybe through life, maybe through study. What's God teaching you? And then how are you going to apply it? What are you going to do about it? And then could I ask maybe a third question, uh, when? What's God teaching you? How are you going to use it and when? And can I just love you through that? 
Listen, if you, uh, having, getting into a life group is a lot like a retirement account. If you wait until you need one, you probably are in trouble. And so get into one before you need it. And Growth Track today, that's what it is about. I want to just encourage you to go to Growth Track at all of our campuses. We would love to just help you try to get into a group to meet other people and do life together. I want to end with this one final passage Jesus gives us in, in the Gospel of John. Jesus is kind of getting everything ready before he goes back to heaven. And he says this to, to, to us. He says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Well, how? Just as I have loved you. You should love each other. And your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. That's fascinating that he would say it that way. So how, how do we prove that we are God's disciples? How do we prove that he is real? How do we prove that all of this is legit? Love each other. Love each other really well. Set the gold standard for love. Don't, it's not in what you know. It's not in how moral you are. He says, no, I, just love each other really, really well because that kind of love will cause the world to sit up and take notice. Now, here's, here's a sobering question. Are we doing that? Like if we were just to walk up to somebody on the street who is not a Christ follower and say, hey, man, what are Christians known for? Would they say, well, man, they're known for a lot of things, but like the way they love each other is amazing. They are killing it at loving each other. It just got awkward in the room. Something tells me we're, we're known for a lot of things, but the way we love each other, I, I don't know if it's one of them. And maybe we need to do something about that. What, what, if, what if we could have a community of Christ followers, just imperfect, fallen, broken people like we are, who could be real? And be authentic. And yet at the same time, we would cheer each other on towards obedience. We would cheer each other on towards Jesus. We would point each other back to the grace and the truth that can be found through Jesus Christ. Man, what, what would that be like? Well, that's the kind of community that would literally change the world. And I want to be a part of it. And I hope you do too. And so when God brings people into our lives, there's a certain posture that we can have. Like one posture when, when God brings someone into our lives as we can be sort of like a little bit guarded and a little bit like I've been hurt before in the past and I don't know if I trust you but changes the dynamic completely when your posture towards someone can just be like this just open it's like hey man it's really nice to meet you and I want to be in your life and let's get to know each other let's just see what God does and uh, to be able to get together with someone and be like hey hey I just want you to know that I know right now that you're you're wrestling in your marriage and I know that I've been there before, and I'm not going to judge you, and I want to give you the help that you need. We're going to get through this together. I'm going to be your ride or die, all right? We're going to get through it together, all right? And then to be able to come up to somebody and be like, hey, man, like, I just want to actually celebrate this victory with you right now. Like, I know that you've actually achieved something that you've been hoping for and praying for for a long time, and so I just want to actually come along with you, and I just want to say, man, way to go. Like, just awesome. I, just, I know what it took to get there, and you get, you'll get open with people. And I'm telling you, what ends up happening is you look down and you're like, you left a part of you with me. And uh, I just got a little bit messy. And some of you are going, that's exactly my point. And I would say, there's a couple of ways you can look at this. You can say, well, you just messed up my shirt. 
Or actually, you just added a little color to my life. Actually, you just marked me. Some of these marks um, are really positive, good marks. Some of them are painful. But God can still use the pain to grow you. The alternative isn't better. Living a, you know, there's no, no paint, no spot, no nothing. You're just safe and isolated over here. So maybe some of us today, maybe the first step is just, maybe you're not ready to go to growth track. Maybe you're not ready to believe all this, but maybe you're ready to change your posture. And to say, God, I'll be open. I'll be open. Here's why. God always uses people to grow people. And I want to encourage you to get back in there. Because you, you are loved. Father, we come to you today and we're so grateful that you loved us with a sacrificial kind of love. Knowing that we would take advantage of it, but you loved us anyway. God, I pray today that if there's anybody here feeling isolated and alone, that we could just be real about that. That we, when people ask us how we're doing, that we wouldn't just give the answer that we're expected to give, but we could give the real one. God, I pray that each and every person knows here that there is no such thing as the peanut gallery. There is no such thing as people who just come to church and watch and observe that we are a part of the body of Christ. And that you want to speak through us. You want to speak through every one of us on Sunday morning just as much as you want to speak through the person teaching on stage. And it comes to our interactions with other people, the way that we love them, the way that we interact. And God, I pray that they could see Jesus in us. And I pray that we would be a part of a church that would literally change the world by the way that we love each other. And so God, change our posture. That we may be open to the people that you're bringing into our lives the people that are passing through our lives and the people that are staying in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And the church says, amen.